black and white and red all over. Ian Murta. He can talk football all day. Well, good evening, Newcastle fans. Good evening, Boa fans. Good evening, Sunderland fans. Although I suspect there aren't too many Mackhams listening tonight. And hopefully they'll all be at the stadium alight for the Black Cats home game against Hull City. Fellow playoff contenders. It's a big, big game for Sunderland. It's an even bigger game, I suspect, for the new manager, Michael Beale. Now, I said new but I get the feeling he's already under a little bit of pressure. I was at his press conference on Wednesday and he's already talking about injuries. He mentioned he had four key players out. Now, that's not what I expect from a, from a manager, you know, who's only been in the job one month. He said a lot of sensible things, but, you know, he is very well aware that his appointment has not gone down well with a lot of fans. Also, of course, there was a the very bruising Derby defeat against Newcastle in the FA Cup. Then they lost at Ipswich last week. He doesn't want three defeats in a row if they lose tonight, which incidentally I don't think they will against an injury-ravaged Tigers side. But if they did, you know, three in a row isn't very nice, is it? Uh, so we'll talk about Sunderland at the moment. Fortunately, they haven't sold any of their star players and they have been linked once again with Ahmad Diallo. Uh, Michael Beale was very forthright when I asked him the question, does he consider Sunderland would be frontrunners for the Man United star? And he said, yes, if Manchester United are going to loan him out, he said, we would expect to get him because Diallo would love to return to Wearside and Sunderland would love him back, as would the dressing room, as would the fans. Will it happen? Well, you know, Manchester United have their own problems, don't they? And I suspect they might they might keep the, the the player at Old Trafford this season. But it would be lovely because he really would make a big, big difference. Anyway, the show tonight, not surprisingly, is going to concentrate on Middlesbrough in the second half. I've got the Evening Gazette's Craig Johns, who covers every single Borough game, home and away, each season. And he's got quite a week, hasn't he? You've got Rotherham, OK, the bottom of the table, but... Uh, Middlesbrough, if they win tomorrow, they could be back in the top six and looking for the playoffs. And uh, then, of course, the game at Chelsea on Tuesday night. What a huge game that is. And Middlesbrough, they hold a slender advantage. They'll be hoping that they can defend well, but they'll also probably need to score a goal, I would suspect, if they to keep their Wembley dream alive. But... My first guest, now Newcastle aren't playing this week. They haven't gone to Saudi Arabia off any uh, warm weather training camp. Uh, Eddie Howe has kept the players in in the northeast, although I suspect they've had a few days off to rest weary limbs this week. But Newcastle, they're always in the news, aren't they? Uh, there's At the moment, there's links with uh, Kieran Dyer going to Germany and Joe Linton maybe turning down a new contract offer. We're going to slightly divert from that. My first guest this evening, well, how should we describe him? Possibly nobody on the planet knows more about Newcastle United than him. He is the club's official historian. He's written numerous books on Newcastle. It's Paul Juano. Good evening, Paul. Hello there, Ian. Uh, Can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear, and I'm delighted to have you on the show because 
in in the past few months i've had on someone who's a good friend of yours despite his red and white roots rob mason who who's written numerous books on sunderland and i've also spoken yeah. to anthony vickers who is now the historian at middlesbrough who's written an outstanding new book which came out in november about middlesbrough and i'm full of admiration for guys like you paul because you know i'm a journalist but we have to research to a certain extent, but the amount of preparation that you footballing historic authors do, it's its incredible. You've been doing it now, I think, for about 40 years, haven't you? Uh, round about that. Uh, I started round about 1980. Bill McGarry was manager at Newcastle United then, so uh, it's its quite a, uh, quite a long time, yeah, over it 40 years. It certainly is. I'm, I'm sure he might be in your all-time... Worst managers, maybe. Well, maybe that he, he certainly divided the dressing room and and yes. the terraces as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, we've had quite a few uh, managers who did that over the years. And how many books have you written in total, Paul? Oh God, I don't know, but certainly well over twenty anyway. Any wow. and uh, wow, I just brought brought what a, a fairly unusual one out just before Christmas about Newcastle West End so that was the history of the other that's club right. St. James's party that's so, right uh, they only lasted 10 years but uh, it was a detailed history of their time at St. James's Park and they um, played a big part in the in the move from uh, Heaton to St. James's Park for Newcastle East End and of course they became Newcastle United very shortly after that's right, hence, hence the United name. Now, I did introduce you, Paul, by saying that there's probably no one walking this earth who knows more about Newcastle. Well, I first got to know you through a mutual friend of ours. I think he was a childhood friend of yours. My my former Evening Chronicle colleague, Paul Tully, who sadly passed away a few years ago. Now, if Paul was still alive today, I would argue that he was someone who'd give you a real run for the money if there was ever a, a footballing mastermind quiz with Newcastle, the specialist subjects. Well, yeah, Paul Tully had a, a very good um, brain for, for memory. Uh, he didn't get into the detail that I get into in terms of <laughs> players and matches and going all the way back to 1881 when, 1881 when Newcastle United started. But uh, certainly Paul uh, knew his stuff and he was uh, football mad and travelled around with me watching Newcastle in the 70s, 80s. And then uh, we worked together at the football club when he was programme editor for a long time. That, that's right. And I know he was a proud member of the 92 club and he when he... When he lived in Hexham, he used to enjoy going over to Carlisle for whenever Newcastle weren't playing. But listen, what I'd like to do tonight, Paul, is I'd like to tap into knowledge in a, in a very specific way. I didn't tell you this beforehand, so I might be catching you off guard. But what I, what I'd like to do is look at the the eras that you've witnessed Newcastle as a fan as a historian. And I, I would argue there's, there's five what great eras, maybe six, as the, you were a fan during the 1969 Fez Cup team era. Then, of course, there was the 1974-76 teams of Joe Harvey, Gordon Lee with McDonald and, and Hibbert, Craig, Natras, Kendi. Then, of course, you've got the the promotion team in the, in the mid-80s of uh, Keegan, Beardsley and Waddle. 
You're moving on to Kevin Keegan's entertainers, then Bobby Robson's side, and of course you've got the Eddie Howe's side today. So I would think, you know, I don't think I missed any of the, the, the great sides out. Can I just put you on the spot a little bit and, and just ask you to put them in a kind of order, which has been your favourite era since you've been watching Newcastle? Oh, it's difficult. Um, nearly as bad as trying to pick uh, Newcastle's greatest ever footballers and teams. But No, it's uh, funny. Yes, I'm going to I'm ask you that up. after that. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, yeah, I was brought up uh, watching them from 1964 onwards. So the first real side that I that caught my eye was obviously promotion in 64-5 as a young lad with Stan Anderson and Jim Eiley. And that, that sort of developed into the, into the Fairs Cup team of 68-9. And that's really... You know, that, that season first in Europe was something quite different. And mm -hmm. uh, it caught my imagination and, and everybody else's in the Northeast. Um, but to try and select the best, uh, well, the, 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 the short list has got to be, um, you know, there's four, four sides, I think. The, the Fairs Cup side, the Entertainers, the Bobby Robson side with the Champions League, and, of course, the Mark McDonald era. Um, the best, oh dear me, it's really difficult. Um, I would probably say the entertainers uh, mm. side when we just missed that Premier League title and we should have got it. And uh, um, and then so Bobby Robson side in the Champions League uh, for two or three seasons when we were up at the top of the table and uh, in in Europe and uh, should have got to a. Uh, um, UEFA Cup final, to be honest, or was it Europa Absolutely. League? Right, UEFA Cup well, final. I think it was UEFA Cup at the time. You know, yeah, that, that, yeah. Bob, that Bobby Robson side, Paul, I think that in, in many respects topped Kevin Keegan's side. And I'll give you two reasons. First of all, Shay Given was in goal, the, the greatest goalkeeper I, I, I've seen in the Northeast during my 38 years reporting football up here. But also, I think it was desperately unlucky when it came to injuries. Had Jonathan Woodgate played more, and also, just as importantly, and I think people forget this, had Craig Bellamy been fit to play alongside Alan Shearer uh, more, that, more often than he was, then I think that that side could have run Manchester United even closer than the entertainers did uh, eight, eight years earlier. Yeah, it was a very good side, uh, a good squad, a uh, very good squad and, and very unlucky with injuries that particular season when we got when we played Marseille in the, in the semi-final of the UEFA Cup. Had we had a, a, a full side out for both those yes. uh, games, I think we would have got to the final. Um, Didier Drogba except, you know, was quite exceptional, but I think we might have held him and Jonathan Woodgate probably would have... Uh, uh, kept them under control but uh, you know it was a great side and they had exceptional players Bellamy and Shearer up front you know, can't get much better than that and uh, Lauren Robert on the on the wing he was just a match winner um, without doubt uh, he could do exceptional things at, at crossing the ball and, and hitting the ball in the net That's right I mean in many respects that defeat in the south of France against Marseille was the beginning of the end for for Sir Bobby at Newcastle, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, quite remarkable that, that um, after his record, getting Newcastle in the top uh, three, four places and into Europe, that he was uh, sort of sacked um, 
at the very beginning or near the beginning of the season it was uh, yes. a, a ridiculous decision uh, in hindsight and uh, the club never looked back really um, or never got back to where they were until until now really um, that's right and I, th I think Freddie Shepard was man enough to admit he, he made a mistake there because uh, you know Graeme Souness I remember the day he joined he said what a magnificent platform he'd been left by uh, Bobby Robson and yet he proceeded to dismantle it uh, brick by brick yeah well he wasn't the first manager to do that Kenny Daglish mm -hmm. did exactly the same with the entertainers and that, that was very very frustrating because all that that entertainer side needed was a, a little bit of tinkering and uh, unfortunately Kenny Daglish went totally the opposite way and dismantled the whole lot. Um, no, it's fu it's funny you say that, Paul, because I can remember having having a argument with Paul Tully about Kenny because I did get on with Kenny and I do keep in touch. But I I think the revisionist verdict on Kenny is kinder than a lot of people would say because if you look at the players he did buy, he brought in Shea Given, Dabazas, he brought in Griffin, he brought in Gary Speed, he brought in Nobby Solano. And of course, the problem was that he barely had Alan Shearer fit for him. You know, Alan Shearer, he, he had picked up a serious injury in the Umbro Cup at Goodison Park before the, the 98 <coughs> season started. So I always felt that, you know, he... He was struggling to, to get a goal score. And of course, everyone knows he brought in Ian Rush, Andreas Anderson. They, they, they never did it. But I do think if you look at his legacy, it was a little bit... I, I think it, I think he's been treated a little bit unfairly by some. Well, I, do, I don't know. <laughs> I, I would tend <laughs> I to maybe disagree. Um, because apart from selling quite a lot of talented players and bringing in... A lot of players who weren't up to that level, um, mm -hmm. the style of football was dreadful as well um, compared to what we had uh, in the preceding uh, four or five years. So, um, you know, uh, I, I go back to what I said at the beginning that uh, he, all that was needed was a little bit of tinkering and he did exactly the opposite, which is, is quite uh, incredible. I'll tell you what, let's talk about the best 11. Now, I do know who would be in your team because your favourite ever player was somebody who only played 33 games for the club and that was uh, Tony Green who sadly had to quit because of a knee injury in 1973, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. Um, it was 39 League and Cup games or, or senior appearances, so a little bit more than the 33, but um, right. yeah, Tony Green just... Um, captivated me when he when he arrived in 1971 um mm -hmm. he was such a, a a dynamic little midfielder come uh, attacking midfielder and uh, he could just dart forward go, go past players at, at will and uh, had a thunderous shot and it was tragic that he uh, came up with that injury which probably in modern football he would have recovered from of but course, back in yes. the 19 the early 1970s um knee injuries and, and uh, the like, uh, um, you know, weren't, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of recovery from those injuries and uh, certain players, uh, you know, sadly had to re retire. You know, Jimmy Smith was another one who was yes. another uh, very much a favourite of mine. That style of football I, I really liked. And Jimmy Smith had exactly more or less the same type of injury that, 
uh, is Tony Green and had to retire as well. Um, so, favourite side, yes, it's very, very difficult. I've done it before a couple of times, <laughs> uh, trying to select the all-time great um, Newcastle United lineup, and considering what Newcastle have had in terms of special teams and uh, special players over the uh, hundred and let's say 140 years and a bit more, but uh, certainly over a hundred years of of winning trophies and being a top club. Uh, it's it's absolutely impossible, really. But uh, I've done it before, and I've come up with a, a, a an eleven plus a few mm-hmm. substitutes. Yeah. Now it's interesting because I, I I was a little bit too young to remember Jimmy Smith and Tony Green, but I remember the side in the seventies just after that. And these days, and I want to talk about the Monday Newcastle as well. A lot of fans, and a lot of fans maybe of my my age as well, would say Kieran Trippier is, is the best right-back they've seen at Newcastle. Now, what my reply to that is, you didn't see Irvin Natras. Now, when I pick a, a top Newcastle side, and I've picked over the years a top Newcastle, a top Sunderland, and a top Bowen side, but one of the first names in my Newcastle side would be Irvin Natras, who was described at the time as a Rolls-Royce of a defender, and and I, and I thought he was a magnificent footballer. Yeah, well, he was. He was a very good full-back. I, I actually did a little piece in the club programme two or three uh, matches ago about Kieran Tripp, yeah, and should he be included in Newcastle's yeah. uh, all-time greats as a full-back, uh, as a right-back, in, in my view, is that um, you've got to remember... There's an awful lot of football played before the Premier League and even before the 1970s. Yes. So there's a lot of very good footballers around. And my shortlist uh, really is Bill McCracken, David Craig, Bobby Cowell, um, Irvin Natras, and now Kieran Trippier. So um, you know, I thought uh, David Craig was exceptional. Uh, and ob- obviously Bobby Cowell won three FA Cup winners' medals FA in Cups. the 50s. Um, and Bill McCracken is, is just a legend uh, in pre-war years. Um, yes. Uh, won everything with Newcastle. And incidentally, I'm deeply in, in research of his biography at the moment. So I am uh, writing his biography, um, a footballing legend. So, uh, you know, right back, I think Kieran Trippier for me is a long, not, not quite as good as Bill McCracken. But mm-hmm. um, he surpasses David Craig, Bobby Cowell, and Irvin Natras. Although wow. saying that, you know, Trippier has only been here two, uh, two and a half years or whatever. Yes. You know, his standard of play uh, has been exceptional in a black and white shirt. But of course, David Craig and Bobby Cowell played for years and years, 400 and odd appearances. And Irvin yes. Natras played a good few years more. But uh, the quality of Kieran Trippier in everything he, he does, whether it's defending inspiration on the field or going forward and attacking, is uh, quite uh, quite exceptional. And um, of course, this but, week but, he's but, just been announced as the, 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 uh, the North East Football Riders. We've just uh, announced him as our Football of the Year for, 19, uh, for 2023, which was a well-deserved yeah. honour despite his, his December blip. Yes, well, all players have bad patches, and, and certainly, uh, you know, December has been a bad month for 
Kieran and and obviously Newcastle United. But he'll mm-hmm. he'll I'm, I'm sure will bounce back. Uh, but you know, for me, it's got to be Bill McCracken for what he did in pre-war years, in in you know over 400 appearances for the club, title winner, cup winner, and the man who changed the offside rule. So of course, uh, I was going to mention that. That's right. He can. He, not many footballers can say that uh, he was responsible for changing the rules of the game. So that's uh, right. Yeah. Well, well I'll, I'll I'll certainly be buying that book. You'll have to let me know when it when it uh, hits the shelves, Paul. Uh, tell yeah. tell me out out of uh, Eddie Howe's current squad, who who else would you would you consider contenders for an all time Newcastle eleven? Well, uh, it's very difficult for for anybody else to get into the shortlist. I think mm-hmm. uh, I think Bruno would get in um, to the shortlist of the midfielders, but there's such an array of midfield talent over the years going yes. back a century that uh, you wouldn't get in the side, um, the final side, uh, but you would be there. Um, and I don't think anybody else would really get into the shortlist um, uh, uh, com- when, you, when you really consider all the other players that's been uh all the top players that are floating around in black and white stripes for a hundred years and more. Nick, um, Nick, Nick Pope. I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of people would say he's up there with Shea Given from the Premier League era. Would, would he, would he be on on your shortlist? Oh, he's, he's certainly up there in the Premier League era. You know, my my top goalkeeper, Shea Given, uh, without doubt. Yes, uh, I haven't been blessed with great world class goalkeepers over the years, but. You know, the short list I've got in, in the all-time list is, is Ronnie Simpson, Willie McFall, Jimmy Lawrence from, from way back, and Shea Gibbon. Now, Nick Pope would probably get into that short list, but he wouldn't he wouldn't surpass Shea Gibbon, without doubt, for me. Um, uh, you know, give him another 10 years at Newcastle, maybe, but Shea Gibbon was here a long time, and... Uh, had he stayed a couple of more seasons, he would have become the club's record goals, uh, record appearance maker. Let, let, let's talk about the side today, because, yes, you, you, you're a historian more than a journalist, but I, I do welcome and I value your comments about where you see the team as it is now. I think it's generally accepted Newcastle United overachieved last season. And I personally don't believe they've underachieved this season. I think this is whereabouts... They they probably should be. What would you say is is a good season for Newcastle this this year? This year, well, I, I, I said at the beginning of the season I'd be uh, very happy if we got into the Europa League. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was very pleased, and still, still, I suppose I'm pleased with with the squad that we've got. Had we not had all these injuries, because when we had most, you know, the majority of everybody fit, and we looked at the substitutes bench, uh, it was very good. Um, and you know, the way that was developing, uh, adding a couple more names, maybe this January and certainly in this coming summer, the overall squad, uh, based on what we've got this season, with Lewis Miley coming through as well, um, yes. is, is going in the right way. Yeah, the season has been decimated with the injuries, and it's uh, and it's not just the odd 
week that people have been or players have been out. It, the, you know, the top class players have been out for for you know four, five, six weeks. And when you look at Wilson and Jolin, and they've been repeatedly out. Um, you know, uh, for for periods which hasn't helped at all, um, and with all the matches we've had, we've had a lot of big matches one after the other in the. Well, first that's half the key. Season. Yes, yes. We, we've needed we needed that big squad to get through that, and we we haven't managed uh, to do that because we've had uh, all these injuries. Um, I mean, when, so, when I've looked when I've looked at the 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 starting 11s, I can't recall too many times Newcastle having a pretty powerful starting eleven. But it's certainly the bench, and of course, you know, football today is very much it, it's very much an eighteen man game, and it's not an eleven man game. And of course, that was never more emphasised than last week against Manchester City, where uh, Eddie Howe didn't have a lot of faith in his bench, while well, uh, Pep Guardiola could bring on one of the greatest players in the world and Kevin De Bruyne, who turned the game Manchester City's way. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right. And, and you know, we had a good bench at the beginning of the season. You know, we, yes. we called on the likes of Barnes coming on and uh, uh, one or two others. And, and uh, you know, we, we looked good. But um, as, I, as I said, it was looking the whole setup and was fine at the beginning of the season. Um, and building on that squad uh, over the course of this season or, or this window and in uh, the summer, uh, we would be on the right tra tracks. We've just got to try and keep the best players and build on them. You know, we can't yeah. get buy six or seven fifty million pound players. I recognise that, but buying the odd, you know, one or two quality players um, every season uh, in two or three years time we'll we'll um we'll have a squad that is um exceptional yes. injury permitting listen, you know, listen, uh, another season truly with all the injuries that we've had you would you wouldn't have thought so listen uh i'm going to invite you back home when that bill mccracken book comes out because i'll certainly buy it and i'm sure a lot of our listeners will be very interested to, to hear you talk about that a little bit more but before you go and you're a Newcastle fanatic, but you're, you're a proud son of the North East. I get all my guests to make predictions, and uh, Newcastle aren't playing this week, but uh, uh, bit of rivals, Sunderland are playing in half an hour's time, and Middlesbrough are entertaining Rotherham tomorrow. So I'd like your predictions for Sunderland v Hull tonight, please, first of all, Paul. <laughs> um, well, I don't take an awful lot of interest in the Championship, I've got to say. Um mm -hmm. But watching Sunderland against Newcastle, it was men and boys. Um, it certainly Hull, was. Uh, Hull have surprised a few people. Um, but, you know, I think probably Sunderland will win. Oh, you said that with a lot of joy. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, what about... Yep. Yeah, who are they playing? That Middlesbrough are at home to bottom of the table Rotherham now before you make a prediction I've got to tell you yep. this up to up to a month ago Middlesbrough hadn't beaten a side in the bottom six and yet they'd beaten sides in the top six now that has changed in, in recent weeks but Middlesbrough have only been consistent in their inconsistency right um, well <laughs> uh, 
Again, I do. I, I don't know an awful lot about Middlesbrough, although I watched them against uh, uh, Chelsea and they, Chelsea. They look, yeah, they, they look pretty good. So I've got to say, Middlesbrough should win that game against Rotherham. I've got to say that. Um, so uh, two two wins and <laughs> and two wins. And what, while you're on, just before you go, I'd like you. It, obviously, you'd have loved it to have been. Uh, Middlesbrough, Newcastle in the Carabao Cup semi-finals, but it wasn't to be. But uh, how do you yeah. see Boa doing at Stamford Bridge on Tuesday night? Well, I think it'll be um, as it's only uh, it's only one nil, isn't it? So uh, I think it'll be a, a, a rip-roaring cup tie, to be honest. But I think Chelsea will probably have too much for Middlesbrough, if, especially if if they get a relatively early goal. Um, but you never know in football, as, as we always keep saying, in the you know, middle where I might just do it. Now, you will know this. I don't think too many of our listeners will, but I remember when I was a kid when... Uh, both Newcastle and Middlesbrough reached the League Cup semi-finals and uh, Newcastle lost 1-0 at Tottenham and Middlesbrough beat Manchester City 1-0 at Ayrson Park. But it wasn't the home victors in the first legs who played at Wembley that year. It was the teams who lost the first legs because Newcastle then went on to beat Spurs 3-1 St James's Park while Middlesbrough, Jack Charlton's Middlesbrough, were hammered 4-0 uh, at... Uh, at Main Road, so that's a, the nearest we probably come to a, a northeast Wembley final since I think the 19, 1955 when we almost had a Newcastle Sunderland FA Cup final. But uh, yeah, there you are. Right. I'm just I, I, I'm just showing there. I'm not quite up to, up to your mastermind level, but I've got a bit of uh, football history there, Paul. Yeah. Okay. And that's very good. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's been wonderful talking to you. And as I say, I'd love to have you back on. If uh, once uh, the Bill McCracken books out, when 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 are you uh, when when are you planning to have that published? Oh, uh, probably not till uh, Christmas uh, this twenty twenty four Christmas. Yeah. Well, I better get my list into Santa Claus early then. So thank thank you yeah. very much, Paul. It's been lovely talking to you. All right. Thanks. Cheers. All the best. Bye bye. Fabulous. Yes. You- that was a bit of a busman's holiday for me, Darren, because <laughs> I do I do love football history. I remember when yeah. we had Anthony Vickers talking about it his is, Middlesbrough yeah. book and uh, Rob Mason talking about Sunderland book. I, I, I love that because, you know, okay, we haven't had a lot of success in recent years, but our our clubs are so rich in football history. And, there's, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't called the hotbed of saga for nothing, was it? No, absolutely. Absolutely, Ian. Uh, this is Black and White and Red all over on the Cat, the Tuna and the Red. Uh, and we'll chat more with uh, Ian and his next guest um, after this. A three-month radio advertising campaign on the Cat, the Toon and the Red. Well, to celebrate the new year, we're offering a three-month radio advertising campaign for businesses in the North East, all for free. Full details are on our websites, thecatuk.com, thetoonuk.com and theredduk.com. You're listening to the Cat, the Toon and the Red, and so are your customers. So come and get your business heard with free advertising on the Cat, the Tune and the Red to over 1.6 million people in the region. Those websites again, it's easy. TheCatUK.com, TheTuneUK.com and TheRedUK.com Now then, do you do sales? Do you fancy a great career challenge? Well, The Red, The Cat and The Tune has a full-time vacancy for a special sales exec. 
Not only will you be responsible for generating the vital revenue needed to see the Northeast's newest radio business grow, but you'll grow too. Show us you can do the business and you'll soon become Group Sales Director. Our stations are flying. We have the three legends back on air, then there's the one that most are talking about, the Northeast Footy Brecky Show, and there's more to come. Gumption and creativity count more to us than years. You may only have two or three years selling experience, but if you get what we're trying to achieve, you will be the right fit. You'll ideally be located in Tyneside or Wearside. This will be a hybrid working role. It's a full-time basic plus commission position. So come on, think you have what it takes? Then give us a shout. Email any of the three stations. That's hello at thetooneuk.com, hello at thecatuk.com, or hello at theredukcom This is Elton John. Hello, I'm Phil Collins. This is not just any old 80s show. Join me for 80s Mint. Two hours of the best 80s music and memories. Right here, every Saturday night from 9 and Mondays from 6. Black and white and red all over. Three decades of reporting Northeast football. Ian Murtagh. The Captain and the Red. You know, January can be a pretty miserable month, can't it? You wake up, which feels like the middle of the night. The Christmas bills have to be paid. It's dark, it's miserable, the roads are icy. But if you're a football fan, it can be one of the best months of the year. And I think for Middlesbrough fans right now, it is one of the best months of the year. You know, they're full of excitement. Uh, They're playing Rotherham tomorrow bottom of the table Rotherham having won at Millwall on the road last week and a top six place is still there but of course the game everyone at Teesside is talking about is Tuesday's return semi-final at Stamford Bridge against Chelsea now if if Middlesbrough had lost that first leg then it might have been a bit of a damp squib in London on Tuesday but they're holding a 1-0 win and Middlesbrough fans, while not wildly optimistic, they're cautiously optimistic and they're saving up their pennies because there might be a Wembley trip very soon. Isn't that right, Craig Johns of the Evening Gazette? That's right, Ian. Yeah, I mean, as you see, it's um, it's it's going to be a difficult task, isn't it, going down there on Tuesday? We all know what quality Chelsea do have if they if the turn up on the night. I know they're not having the best of seasons, but... Uh, Middlesbrough go there as you say with that 1-0 lead and and you know a bit of a, a kind of blueprint for, for what got the job job done last time so so why not? That's right now if Michael Carrick was listening to us Craig and I hope he is hello Michael he would be saying don't talk about that it's the next game that's most important well I'm, I, I'm going to weld the two together and I'm going to ask you a question and I want a, a firm answer here you don't know I'm going to ask you this Craig do Middlesbrough have a better chance of finishing in the playoffs or reaching Wembley? Oh, that is a tough question. Um, you know, it, it's a very tough question because I think the playoffs are, are there 
it's wide mm-hmm. open and it, it and it is ultimately in Middlesbrough's hands. I would say that one in terms of win, you know, the the games that they should win between now and the end of the season, they probably will get in. But you look at that playoff picture and. I would say there's probably only two spots left to play for and, and quite a lot of teams playing for it as well. A lot of good teams playing for it. So it's by no means a given, but I certainly think that's more achievable than than, than getting to Wembley, even though as we see, you know, everything we see about going to Chelsea with that one goal advantage and, and why not? I think uh, it's certainly um, reasonable to believe and dream, but, uh, but it's still going to be a monumental task, isn't it? Going to Stamford Bridge and and getting a result there. It is. I'm going to ask you an even tougher question. You're going to hate me after this, Craig. Uh, <laughs> which would you Which would you prefer, a trip to Wembley or a playoff spot? It, it would depend on what come from the playoffs. I think if yes, of course. getting into the playoffs guarantee promotion, then you have to take that every time, don't you? But yes. there is no guarantee. And I think even if we're getting into the playoffs, it will be very difficult to get through them. Given You probably, I would I would expect now that Leeds and Southampton, when I see there's only two spots available, I would expect the, those to be the two sides who, who so, have yeah. the two kind of sealed presuming that Ipswich don't let their kind of grip on second slip uh, and fall out of it. And, you know, Leeds and Southampton, obviously, their resources because of parachute payments are uh, uh, vast in comparison to Middlesbrough's and, and they've both kind of warmed into the season at the right time. And uh, they're obviously going to be very, very difficult uh, teams to beat in the playoffs. So, so I think actually I'd probably take the Wembley trip because uh, yep. you know I mean what an achievement it would be for Middlesbrough to, to reach a reach a, a major cup final you know while a second division team beating Chelsea over two legs on the way to that final I think uh, you know that would be such a monumental occasion such a you know such a big big um, achievement for them even just to get the final so so I think I'd probably take that one. Do you know I I can understand why you're saying that you know as i've covered northeast football now 38 years i've seen so many disappointments at wembley and and at the millennium stadium in cardiff the only time i've seen a northeast team win was when middlesbrough 20 years ago beat bolton wanderers at at cardiff and and the final whistle i felt emotional because I'd seen Middlesbrough lose three, four cup finals. I'd seen Newcastle lose cup finals. I'd seen Sunderland lose cup finals, playoffs, etc. It was the most wonderful, wonderful thought. My uncle, who at the time, he's no longer with us, but he was 71 years old, and he went down. And I can remember just after the final whistle, he had his mobile phone, and I rang him. He answered. We didn't hear. We couldn't hear each other, but I just wanted to hear the emotion in his voice celebrating his side's first ever major silverware and it, and it was wonderful and yeah i mean i would as a, if i was a, a born and bred middlesbrough fan i would settle for another season in the championship if it brought if there was a second piece of silverware at, at wembley and of course that would mean another european tour of course wouldn't it well, yeah, I would certainly enjoy that one, Ian. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean that that story there about you know that's that's what it's all about, isn't it? Football's it is, yeah. about memories. It's about the big days. It's about the special occasions, and you know, and it, was, it was about Steve now, Gibson. Steve Gibson on the on the podium with them, and 
That, that was yeah, just so absolutely. lovely to see. I mean, it's a famous picture, which is all up in the Rockliffe training ground and, and at the riverside. And yeah, wonderful. Yeah, and, and and as you say, you know, you making those memories is, is it's what football's all about. And Middlesbrough are in a position now where they, they feel like they're building quite nicely. That you know they've got this forward-thinking strategy in, in place, and you know if they weren't to go up this season, it wouldn't be by any means the end of the world. They might have to sell a couple of players, um, you know, along the way. But they've they've got they seem to be so switched on in terms of the strategy and the direction that they want to go in that. Things are really looking up now, and I think you know something special like winning the Carabao Cup this season, even if it meant that they didn't go up. Of course, the two don't have to be exclusive; they could do both. But um, but you know, if, if that was to be the case, where it was one over the other, then you know that really would be something that lived long in the memory for everybody. Yeah, listen, I've I've just had Michael Carrick on the phone. Sorry, but he's he's telling us off. He said, "Will you please start talking about the Rotherham <laughs> game tomorrow?" <laughs> but uh, no, seriously, I mean, Middlesbrough—they do have a great chance. It, it it's funny, isn't it, how momentum can shift so suddenly? Because when when they lost to Coventry two or three weeks ago, and they played very very well first half, but the second half Coventry basically played them off the park. And I and I I tipped a defeat at, at Millwall last week, but that has given everyone a lift. And suddenly, there's a feel good factor sweeping round Teesside after the first leg win against Chelsea and the the Millwall game. Now playing bottom of the table of Rotherham. Okay, you don't take it three points for granted, but they should, all things being equal, be three points, which should take Middlesbrough to the brink of the the playoff positions. Yeah, I mean, you would hope so. I mean, obviously, the the big warning for that is, of course, on Boxing Day, Middlesbrough went to Rotherham and and, and lost. So as you say, you you can't take that for granted. But but they were much the better team that day, and it was just a case that many many chances they got in that game at the New York Stadium they didn't take. And you know, Rotherham had one shot on target, which wasn't actually a shot on target. It was a cross that ended up deceiving uh, Tom Glover and and went in. So it was one of those afternoons really for Middlesbrough. But you know, but it. It is a warning that you by no means can take them for granted and, and just expect that those three points are a given. Uh, but yeah, you're right. There's there's a there's a really you know big momentum around Middlesbrough at the moment. They feel like after what was a, a really poor start of the season, you know, ironically the Carabao Cup was kind of a platform for them in terms of you know signed twelve new players in the summer transfer window and. Many of them needed that kind of time to to bed in and to adapt. Many of them coming from from countries outside of England, experiencing a division like the Championship for the first time. And you know, ironically, the Carabao Cup in the earlier rounds was was very much a a, a kind of you know springboard for them to yes, to build and right. to grow at the club. And it's it's been really useful for that in in what has ultimately then you know positively impacted the the league form and the turned it around after, you know, they were bottom after eight games of the season. Torrid night at Hillsborough where they managed to just about scrape a draw. Um and, and it all turned from there, really beating Southampton in the next game. And yes. Um and injuries have impacted the season as it seems to for so many. And obviously that's mm. led to a little bit of inconsistency since October. But, you know, the fact that, you know, despite all of that, they're still Heading into this period of the season, just one point outside the playoff zone. The strengthened in January with a couple of um, what I would call shrewd signings. Um, it, it, they really do look well placed for the second half of the season, and the you know what 
looks like an exciting running. Now, you, I know at, at uh, Michael Carrick's press conference this week, obviously a lot of questions have been asked about Hayden Hackney, who's very much the man of the moment. And, uh, you know, he is destined for a stellar career. Hopefully it's at Middlesbrough, but I suspect it might be elsewhere if Middlesbrough don't go up this season. But Lucas Engel, you, you mentioned that Sheffield Wednesday game earlier in the season when he, he had an absolute nightmare, didn't he? And he, he was left out the That's side. Right. And, and initially, he looked like a bad buy. But he's been one of Middlesbrough's, well, certainly one of the more outstanding performers in recent weeks, hasn't he? And he's not just defensively, but he, he's proving quite a, a threat on the left flank going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, the thing that you've got to see about Lucas Engel is what, you know, strength of character he he must yes. have to just say he, he had that torrid night at Sheffield Wednesday and he was pulled off at half time because um their 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 right wing back Valentin he, he just beat him every time with minimal effort in the first half mm. and uh, yeah yes. so pulled off at half time and uh, that can't you know be easy to kind of you know mentally deal with that it, it's quite a, an embarrassing thing isn't it when you you know everybody's just watched you be. Uh, you know, be tortured down a down a wing for for forty five minutes, and then you you dragged off. And I think in an ideal world at that time, Carrick probably would have left Engel out of his team for a lot longer mm. than he yes. than he ultimately did. He, he had three games where he didn't play, and I mean, you know, such was Burr's situation at that time. It was actually midfielder Lewis O'Brien who was playing at left back ahead of him. So. You know, if you think of Lucas at that point, he sat on the bench watching somebody who's not even a left back playing in his position. Yeah, uh, and then nice. you know, as it happens, three games later, Lewis O'Brien gets injured, and and Carrick's left with with little choice but to to put Lucas back in. You know, probably sooner than he would have liked, really. And to be fair to Lucas, he he, he faced that challenge head on, and and as you see, he's, he's grown and grown and grown. It was a, a difficult first game back in, but he ended up coming through it. He got an assist in that one against Cardiff and he, he has he's, he's he's gone from strength to strength since that night it was a big moment for him that Cardiff assist and uh, first goal at Millwall uh, last weekend and as you see he's, he's, he's really growing and, and really showing the qualities that he's got that obviously the Middlesbrough recruitment team saw in him when they decided to bring him Yes and, and he, he's very much almost he, he symbolises what's happening to Middlesbrough at the moment because Middlesbrough are finding adverse. It's a cliche, really, but it's you know strength in adversity. You know, they they really when you look at the injuries and the unavailability, they have no right to be looking forward to so many uh, to such an exciting month ahead of them. You know, McGree's on international duty with Australia. Lenehan, outstanding defender, out for the season. Paddy McNair sidelined. You you've got the two they probably going to the game against Rotherham tomorrow, definitely without Latte Lap, but probably without uh, Josh Coburn as well. I mean, the injuries are biting hard, and yet, and it's great credit to Michael Carrick, but it's also huge credit to the character of the squad. They, they are somehow, as a collective, uh, prospering. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, all those injury kind of problems that they've had that you've mentioned there, it, it stretches back really until probably mid-October, this kind of really started to become a problem. And, and, and yeah. since then, it's been a, a pretty common theme that, you know, up to and, and, and in some cases more than 10 players have been missing each game. And it's yeah. it's kind of worked out where because, you know, players have been overworked and having to take on a higher workload than you'd maybe normally put on them because of the injuries you're getting one or two back and then another one or two are breaking down and, and getting their own injuries. And it's, it's kind of been Burr's luck, um, you know, for the last few months now, really. And they are starting to look a little better. They are hoping that things are going to start to turn around for them a little bit. I mean, you mentioned the the striker situation there. That's the the kind of one where they are a bit concerned. I think Josh is, is coming back into it. I'm not sure whether he'll be available tomorrow, but Josh Corburn, but he's had a tricky season where he is just having to manage a few knocks. He's only, you know, obviously 21-year-old boy. This is his first yeah. kind of senior season in the in the Borough team. He had a loan spell yeah. at Bristol. I like Wolves him. Last I like, year, I so. like him, but I just... You know, it's it again. It's a cliche, but he's someone who does put in his shift. And if you're a centre half, 100%, then yeah. you you do know that Josh Coburn is going to give you a hard hard time. And I, I like the player. That's it. Yeah, you're you're right about him. But as we see, he's 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 picking up one or two niggles along the way, and he struggled to kind of steer fit as the season's going on. And and, and similar to with with the other number nine, the the lad that signed in the summer, Emmanuel Latielaf. He's he's had his injury troubles, and he's going to be out for a little bit longer as well. He's not kind of too close to to returning. So that's that's the one area now as players do start to come back in 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 a lot of other positions. They are still short up front. And I mean, you know, we talked about those two centre forwards that they've got there. They've got five each so far this season. I think, you know, if you were a kind of this about two weeks left of the January transfer window now, and if you were a kind of you know, cherry pick your your perfect kind of end of the window for Middlesbrough, it would be that they managed to get a, a centre forward yes. through the door. Because uh, they could just deal with that bit of you know kind of prolificity up top um, and and kind of regular goal scoring that they had from from Cameron Archer when they brought him in last yes. January on loan from Aston Villa, but you know easier said than done that because it's, it it seems course, a bit that... of a dead mark at the moment. And um, it does, doesn't it? It does. Listen, yeah. I, I, if you ask most fans or most journalists who cover a, one particular club, name the name the top the three most important players at that club. I think they'd come up with fairly typical answers. I mean, up the road at Sunderland, you would say Jack Clark, Dan Neal, Dan Ballard. Now, I'll put it to you, Craig, at Newcastle, at, sorry, at Middlesbrough, people would give very, very varied answers because I, I couldn't tell you who Middlesbrough's play of the, play of the year so far was because they're, they're all having peaks and troughs and, and people who you don't expect... To, to to be be influential, like coming into the side, doing a great job, you know, there beat injuries and all that. So it's it's a very strange one, really, with Middlesbrough. They very much are a squad rather than a first eleven or even a first fourteen. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on there, Ian. Because you know, as you see, I think the injuries are are the, are the big factor there that they've. You know, Michael Carrick last season, I think, of the good run that they went on, um, particularly between kind of January uh, through January and Mar- uh, through to March. And you by and large, with one or two changes here and there, it was a very settled 11. You, you pretty yeah. much every game knew the 11 players that were going to start. Um, 
this season he just hasn't been able to do that. There hasn't been consistency in team selection, largely because of injuries. But but as you say, the one thing that they have had, and and it goes back to that summer transfer window where, you know, they brought twelve new players in. Um, yes. The, the, they have got depth and, and they have found that when, when players have dropped out, um, others have come in and, and done a job, you know, with, I think when, when you talk about that, you know, instantly the players that kind of come to my mind um, when you talk about the three most influential or important players, Johnny Housen, obviously the captain and a very uh, kind of lead by example midfielder, veteran now, 35-year-old, but still playing yes. as though he was 25. And, and then obviously, as you've already mentioned, Hayden Hackney, who's very much the star of the team. But then, you know, middle, Michael Carrick only plays with two midfielders. And then I'm thinking in the back of my head, well, Dan Barlas has been absolutely fantastic for the last um, month or yes. two. Uh, while, while Hayden Hackney's been out injured, he's, he's probably put in you know his best run of games since joining the club from Rotherham a year ago so as you say right through the team you can go through and pick so many of them who deserve yep. praise for kind of stepping up at, at difficult times for the club and that is yeah, ultimately right. why as we say they are they are still right in the mix Listen, uh, Michael Carrick is going to have one hell of a job when he's picking that Carabao Cup final team and that playoff final team, isn't he? <laughs> but listen, I'm, I'm jumping ahead there. It's five minutes to kick off at, at the Stadium of Light. Uh, we have been talking Middlesbrough, but I'm going to ask you a prediction for the Sunderland Hull game at, uh, right now. You've seen both teams this season. Where do you see that one going? It's, it's an interesting one. Both are, I feel, well, very... I was going to say very um, kind of inconsistent teams, very, you never know what you're going to get from them. But I think that's typical of the championship, really, beyond the kind of top four teams. Um, I'll put my Middlesbrough hat on and say that a draw is probably the best result for them and then gives them a a nice kind of incentive, if you like, not that they need it, but a a bigger incentive to go and get three points against Rotherham tomorrow. So I'll go for a 1-1 draw. And what's your scoreline for Boa v Rotherham tomorrow, Craig? Uh, I'll go 3-0 Burr. I think we'll see a return to a kind of clinical and um, you know, kind of ruthless Middlesbrough that we saw a lot from Michael Carrick's side in the second half of last season, particularly at home. Interesting, because the three legends who are on before us, they're, they're predicting a pretty emphatic Middlesbrough win. But of course, the listeners are hanging on your every word here. They want to know, <laughs> are they going to be celebrating... The thousands of fans heading down to southwest London, are they going to be celebrating on the long journey back to Teesside on Tuesday night? Yeah, I, I, I can't I can't bet against the main, so I'm gonna say they're gonna go down there. They're gonna you know, I, I would expect he'll revert to three at the back like he has done uh, in the first leg and like he did do against Villa in the cup. I think they'll give a really dogged and determined defensive performance again. I think they'll get a nil nil draw and obviously that'll be enough to see them uh, to Wembley. Do you know what? I'm going to agree with you. I didn't think I would. It's only in the last few days I've thought Middlesbrough will will do enough at Stamford Bridge to go through. Now, I suspect it might be a 1-0 defeat and winning on penalties, but I've got a feeling that it would be a Liverpool v Boa Carabao Cup final, which would be absolutely wonderful. 
if it wasn't for me print deadlines, I'd absolutely love the penalty shootout victory uh, storyline. But uh, <laughs> yes, if we could avoid that, that would be perfect. <laughs> that's right. I mean, like you, I mean, that Aston Villa game, I was bloody cursing at the end because you do not want goals in the 87th, 88th minute, let alone extra time and penalties. So I totally empathise with you there. Craig, it's been <laughs> a, a pleasure once again. And... Um, well, I've uh, tried to persuade the bosses here that uh, we're presenting the show live from Wembley uh, before the uh, before the uh, Carabao Cup final at Middlesbrough there, and you will be one of the, my first people I ring to be a special guest that night. So thank you very much. Well, will be a pleasure, Ian. Very smart. <laughs> Take care, Craig. All the best. You too. Cheers, mate. Bye. There's nothing better than a bit of January optimism, is it, Darren? Even <laughs> I've caught it. Yeah, you know? well, yeah, I think we. I was talking uh, on the red last night with Andy Campbell um, on the Andy on the their Red Army show, and there is a real positivity. And you, you said it, Ian. There's a real uh, buzz around Borough at the moment. You know, the the you've got Gary Lineker and Mika Richards, you know, and Cheerer all talking about Borough in the press yeah. in a, in a positive light, which is brilliant. Um, and yeah, really, really good to see. Um, I think the way that they came back against Millwall at the weekend, I think, showed a real strength of character. Um, I think that the two new signings going into the team really made a difference. We've got players coming back uh, into the team. Yeah, there's there's a real there's a real buzz and a real um, yeah a real hope that, that that they can do this on Tuesday. It, it is strange because looking back over the years, over the decades even, you know, you look at January and, so, and from Middlesbrough, Sunderland and Newcastle, you know, it, 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 it can be a month that makes or breaks a club. And of course, for fans, it's, it's a, probably the month that they want their football club to give them something more than any other month. Because as I said, you know, it is a miserable month. It's a long time till, till the nights uh, get lighter and till the summer holidays. Christmas is gone. They've got the bills to pay for. And football really, really can be an absolutely wonderful antidote to, to the January blues. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, as Michael Carrick, I'm sure, will be telling the players, uh, there's something to do first, which is beat Rotherham. <laughs> Um, you know, that, I'm sure that'll be in his mind um, that they've got to beat Rotherham, go there, get the three points, stay in contact with the playoff positions. Um, but yeah, it's you know, there's going to be players playing out of their skin uh, to get to that final or to get to that semi final so they can get to that final on Tuesday night. Well, it's FA Cup week next week, or Sunderland are playing against Stoke at home next week, but let's just hope that. Uh, Middlesbrough fans are feeling as happy and as giddy next Friday as they are right now. Yeah, we can we can live in hope, Ian. We can live in hope. Thank you <laughs> again, Ian. Uh, a fa- another fabulous ev- uh, episode. Um, black and white and red all over. The podcast will be available soon, and we'll see you at the same time next week, Ian. Have a good week. Enjoy your football this weekend.